This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA here on this Friday, February 4th. You know, we have spent this past week down at the convention center for the National Cattlemen Beef Association annual get together in Houston. And folks, I tell you, I've had a chance now to kind of think and sleep on the conversations I had down there in Texas. And boy, there is a lot of optimism about the future of this industry. One of the things that struck me as I reflect on the conversations I had with cattle producers who were there in Houston was that even though there have been a lot of struggles over the past two years, I was talking to cattle feeders who two, three years now, they've been in the red due to events beyond their control, whether it's you know, fires at packing plants, the coronavirus pandemic, you know, you name it, the the allegations of price fixing for meat packers and so forth. All of these struggles have, have worked to keep these cattle producers on their heels for the past two or three years. And yet, you know, we talked about this with Jesse Allen yesterday on the show, and yet there is an incredible amount of optimism. And it's not just optimism that things are going to get solved. It's optimism and it's ownership of that optimism. And the number of producers I spoke with who were planning to do new things on their operation in 2022 or 2023 was huge. I talked to so many cattle producers who are excited about new production facilities being announced or coming online in their territory. These are local, these are regional plants. And when we think about these numbers on the whole, they might not be huge, but we're moving that cash cattle business back to the back to the market. We're seeing more excitement take place from the consumers. They're looking to connect with their cattle producers. The beef market's going to have some challenges. I think for the next couple of years, the battle lines are being drawn about uh, you know how to address competition uh, in the meatpacker space. But the optimism that pervades the industry, at least from the folks I had the chance to speak with in Houston, was reassuring. And I felt really comfortable and confident in the future of the beef industry. So I just want to say, I know we've got a lot of listeners out there who, who can't travel to events like the NCBA conference in Houston and other things that happen around the country. And I just want to say thank you, folks, for doing what you do. If you're in the beef business, you've had two challenging years, three challenging years. Cow-calf producers have been struggling for four or five, depending on the weather. Folks, thanks for sticking it out. Thanks for continuing to do the work you do and for staying positive about it. Before we get into the show today, officially, I want to talk about some of the things that are happening around the country. We're going to be talking to Jerry Hagstrom here in segment two. We're going to be looking at what is coming out of Washington, D.C. And in segment three, we're going to get an update from Arlen Suderman on these markets. They have continued to move. And then finally, we're going to end this show with our friend Greg Solier, meteorologist from this week in agribusiness. It's time to get an update on what happened with that storm system throughout this week. I know a lot of you folks tuned in right now are probably digging or salting or still trying to move some snow around. We'll see if if we're done for a little bit. And Greg will give us an update on what to expect as the next week gets underway. But first, we did have some big announcements for the economy this morning. We had the U.S. payroll report for January unveiled. Heading into this report, it was released at 7.30 Central Time this morning. Heading into this report, economy Economists were expecting to see the U.S. economy adding 125,000 jobs through the month of January. There was a lot of concern that the Omicron surge, particularly in the East Coast and some of the lockdowns that came from that, would have discouraged employers from hiring. Well... It didn't. Good news on the payroll front. The U.S. added 467,000 new jobs in January. That's up, as I mentioned, from those expectations of 125,000. Private hiring is what has been driving this surge. These are, these are private businesses, by and large, doing the hiring. This is not massive federal government hiring uh, for the most part. Also, the Department of Labor went back and added 709,000 jobs to the prior two months tallies. This tells us that we are seeing the employment market stay very, very hot. Ironically, or I guess I should say interestingly, even though we have these huge numbers much higher than expectations, the unemployment rate 
actually climbed after this report, but it climbed for a good reason. When we think about the unemployment rate, and I know we've discussed it on the podcast before, there, there are two factors that go into deciding it. One is whether or not you have a job. Obviously, that's that's first and whether or not you're unemployed. The second factor is whether or not you're looking for a job. They, if you say, you tell the surveyors, no, I'm too depressed about the labor market. I'm not even looking for work. I'm gonna wait until things turn around. You don't get counted as being unemployed. So that helps drive the unemployment rate down lower because obviously you're just not in the tally. Well, what happened here in this result, in this report rather, was that a lot of these people who had said they were too depressed on the labor market, now they're coming back in. It's starting to heat up enough and they're starting to look for jobs. And this is good, I think, largely for the supply chain challenges that we've been facing in this country, but it is creating some challenges, particularly for small businesses. There was a side of that report that was released as well, looking not just at unemployment levels, but at wages. And in January, a record 50% of all small businesses doing hiring in that month had to raise their pay to hire workers. Uh, there has never been uh, an, an amount of small businesses that high who have had to raise their wages in one month. This keeps inflation on the radar, not just for the Federal Reserve, but it keeps inflation on the radar globally. So do expect some higher costs as uh, as employers start to bake these inflation rises into their payrolls. And I think if you are looking to hire help in 2022, the data suggests it is going to be more expensive than when you hired help over, well, anytime over the past several years, going back to maybe 1982. It is going to be pricey. And those price levels rising are driving central banks around the world to grow concerned about when they need to raise interest rates. We've been having this discussion in the U.S. for several months. Jerome Powell at the, uh, the United States Federal Reserve Board has said that we are going to hike rates this year. Most folks in the markets are planning on three, four, perhaps five rate hikes as we get through the remainder of 2022. Well, the Bank of England announced yesterday they are going to begin that process. The Bank of England raised their interest rates uh, 2.5%. So it was a 25 basis point increase in the uh, rate of interest over in England. But what surprised a lot of market watchers was that about half of the Bank of England Board of Directors wanted to raise it by 50 basis points rather than 20. It was much larger than a lot of folks in the trading community had been expecting to see from England. And even though they didn't go that far, it shows that these board governors are more concerned about inflation than perhaps we've had to think for quite some time. And I want to update some folks on weather. We'll talk to Greg Solia here at the end of the show, get the full update on the impact. But if we think back to last year and that cold snap that dipped all the way down into Texas, we've been seeing the long tail impacts of that cold snap this fall, right? Because we have had fertilizer prices continue to climb, due in some part, you know, and the amount of impact, of course, is up for discussion. But that was in a large part due to the fact that Texas took a bunch of plants online, offline during that cold snap last year. Well, it's cold again in Texas. So far, the power grid is holding up, and they do anticipate that throughout today will be the largest use of power in Texas in history, but they do anticipate those delivery lines and electricity system to stay operational. When we return, we will be talking to Jerry Hagstrom about what's going on in Washington, D.C., so stay with us here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. DTN and Progressive Farmer bring producers the best content in agriculture. Each day our editors post unique content to our website, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day -day business decisions. DTN and Progressive Farmer provide insights throughout the year to questions like, what is the outlook for corn yields in 2021? Will feed prices surge? What about land prices? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? For more intelligence like this, visit DTNPF.com. As a truck driver, I've learned how important road safety is. I know that large trucks need more time and room to stop. That's why I always hang back and follow other vehicles at a safe distance. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. 
Next time you're driving, try to remember to always give trucks extra space when you merge in front of them. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. Today, more than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's, and more than 11 million family members and friends serve as their caregivers. While researchers are working tirelessly to end Alzheimer's and all other dementia, the number of people living with Alzheimer's is expected to more than double by 2050. The toll of the disease is monumental, and its devastation affects family, friends, and especially caregivers. No one should face Alzheimer's and dementia by themselves. If you or someone you know is struggling to provide care to a loved one, please share this message. You are not alone. Free help and resources are available 24-7. To talk with an expert and obtain disease-related information, care and support services, call 800-272-3900 or visit the Alzheimer's Association website at alz.org. You are not alone. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... (laughs) Hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today on this Friday, February 4th. Boy, even though I've been down in Houston this past week, the work in Washington, D.C. has continued. Ag policy updates have been made. In fact, at the NCBA event in Houston, Secretary Vilsack, America's Secretary of Agriculture, dropped by and discussed some additional resources for farmers. We're going to talk about that and everything else happening in Washington, D.C. with Jerry Hagstrom of the Hagstrom Report. Jerry, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. I'm very happy to be with you for the first time on your program. I enjoyed my conversations with Mike and I'm sh- Adams, and I'm sure I'll enjoy them with you. Well, I certainly hope so, Jerry. Thanks for jumping on. Let's talk about some of this assistance that's coming out of USDA. Secretary Vilsack discussed it in Houston. We've got $10 billion coming out for ag with a, a portion of that earmarked specifically for livestock producers. Jerry, do we have any more details on this program from USDA yet? Uh, no, we really don't have any, uh, except that they're that they're they're going to be following the uh, the kind of application processes they've had in the they've had in the past. Uh, so I think it's very important for the livestock producers to contact their farm service agency offices uh, if they have not applied for assistance yet uh, to see what they should do. Yeah, that makes sense. Do we know, Jerry, when we could get some more guidance on a program like this? Uh, I don't know for sure. I, I think you'll just have to wait. Well, uh, I think we just have to wait now and see what they, uh, uh, what they're, what they're going to, uh, you know, what they're going to put out. Uh, uh, I think that, you know, they had both Vilsack and Robert Bonney, the, 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 uh, undersecretary for farm production, uh, speaking to, uh, speaking to the cattlemen. Uh, so I think it'll just uh, it'll just uh, be uh, be a while. They on their what they call their phase two uh, for livestock and crop producers. They just uh, they said they would fulfill the they'd fill the gaps, but they haven't put out any details on that yet. 
Okay. Yeah, kind of a waiting game here, but I do understand that uh, this money on the livestock side, at least from my understanding from Secretary Vilsack, was that this is mainly going to go to producers who are impacted by either drought or wildfires. Jerry, does that jibe with what you've heard about uh, the program? Yes, that's uh, that's right. It's the it's those two things. It's the, it's the, it's what happened in 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 the uh, uh, year 2021 calendar year 2021. And there's $750 million in there, uh, which uh, seems to me like a lot of money. I don't know how much it'll how, how it'll seem when they finally start divvying it up, uh, because I don't know how many uh, you know how many people will apply. But we'll have to see. Um, they say they've already gotten 74 applica- applications, uh, totaling more than $500 million for the livestock forage disaster program. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, I think they're still accepting applications. All right. Well, folks, get in there to that FSA office. If you were impacted by drought or wildfires and you perhaps lost some cattle or some livestock, there might be some some additional resources potentially heading your way. Jerry, we've been talking a lot about beef this past week here on the show while we've been at NCBA, but you, the week prior, had the chance to go to the Dairy Forum from the uh, Iowa Dairy Foods, excuse me, International Dairy Foods Association. Jerry, what were you learning? What were the hot topics under discussion at the Dairy Forum this year? Well, to me, the, the, the hot topic really is whether uh, there will be changes to the federal milk marketing orders. The, the big issue is that the federal milk marketing orders, which of course are regional around the country, they're all based on the idea of making sure that there's enough fluid milk. And this goes back to the 1930s when uh, it was actually hard to make sure that there would be fluid milk in some of the states where you didn't traditionally have cattle, like, like Florida, for example. But our, we're, the, the conditions for raising cattle have changed, but, but the other issue is that the amount of fluid milk that Americans drink has gone down. At the same time, we're, uh, we're, as Mike Dykes, Michael Dykes, the uh, uh, president of the IDFA says, we're eating our dairy, not, not drinking it. That's the one thing. So we've had more, we have a shift going there. And then the other is that the dairy industry is now trying to export more. We're now exporting about 20% of our dairy products. We didn't used to export anything. But, but the, the system is still uh, geared towards the providing the fluid milk, the, the pricing system, and the, there is talk about making some changes. But the deal is that you have to, they have to reach agreement between the dairy farmers and the dairy processors. Secretary Vilsack says he doesn't want to listen to anything until the industry is, is agreed upon. Now, there's always the suspicion among the dairy farmers that what the processors really want is cheaper ingredients. And so uh, they're going to have to do some negotiating about this. Uh, the, uh, both, but both the dairy farmers and the uh, processors are interested in having hearings at the USDA, which could lead to some changes in the milk market order system. Did they discuss at all, Jerry, how those changes might look, or really this is a blank slate as they look to the future? Well, that's the interesting thing. The IDFA issued a report that it had commissioned, um, uh, but all it did was describe the situation and describe the possibilities. But you could see in the report that the authors uh, believe uh, th- that the system should be changed so that the uh, processors can gain more a- more access to milk for making products as opposed to being so concerned about fluid milk. Now, the dairy farmers who were not uh, did not speak at that meeting uh, but were represented there by uh, my- Jim Milhern, their president, uh, uh, they're, you know, they're concerned about uh, just how this would go from the processing standpoint, what the processors would propose. They have some of their own ideas, uh, which they say could also make the system work better, but no one has released anything about what they want to do. All right. So there's going to be a lot of discussions in that space, Jerry. As we think about both the the dairy industry with this conversation they'll be having, the meat industry largely, specifically beef with the marketing discussions, what have you heard from Capitol Hill, or at least the the executive bodies, about competition? Is the Biden administration still focused on maximizing competition, quote unquote, here in uh, various industries? 
yes, the Biden administration is still focused on that. Now, I've been through this debate before in the, in the Obama administration, so I still wonder exactly how they're going to do it. The, the biggest issue to me in the discussion about competition is that, is that in the past, antitrust policy has been focused on the consumer. And you had to prove that, that the lack of competition raised consumer prices or, or in some other way uh, was bad for consumers. But now what we're talking about is not the consumer, but the relationship between the meat packer or the processor and the producer of the original ingredient. And, and traditionally, antitrust policy hasn't covered that. I wonder if they want to change the law, reinterpret the law. Then you also have the Packers and Stockyards Act, uh, which has um, in the past uh, proven to be weak from the, from the standpoint of the producers. Uh, and, but USDA is talking about revising some of the rules surrounding that. So they really have to make some pretty big changes if they're really going to change, if they're, if they're really going to have an impact. Yeah, and those discussions are going to continue all year long. Jerry, as you look out to this weekend and the next week ahead, what are some of the big events in Washington, D.C. you're going to be watching? Well, as a matter of fact, I'm headed back to Palm Springs, California, or I should say Indian Wells near Palm Springs for the meeting of the crop insurance industry. And what, what to me is very important there is what will they have to say about these proposals to establish a permanent disaster program? When the crop insurance program was set up, it was with the idea that you wouldn't need to have disaster programs anymore because crop insurance would take care of everything. Well, that crop insurance has take care, taken care of a lot. It is a very popular program, cost the government $9 billion a year, but people believe it really, it really works. But it doesn't deal with everything. It doesn't deal with things like buildings that fell down in the uh, in that terrible derecho that that took place in Iowa and some other states. And so now there's pressure for a disaster program to be put into it, but there's always been a theory that if you put in a disaster program, you're endangering the support for the crop insurance program. So that's the number one issue I'm going to be looking at uh, next week. And, Jerry, if they make any changes, these would come in the 2023 Farm Bill. Is that right? Yes, most likely they would. Crop insurance actually is set up as a separate program from the Farm Bill, but they make changes in the uh, Farm Bill. And so that's what, what, uh, when they would happen. All right, we'll keep an eye on that. Jerry Hagstrom, thanks so much for coming in and give us an update about what's going on in Washington, D.C. Thank you, and congratulations on your new program. Well, thank you, Jerry. And thanks to all of you for tuning in today. When we return, Arlen Suderman will be joining us. We're going to talk inflation and we're going to talk hiring and we're going to talk ag market. Stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast called Field Posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com backslash field posts. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. As we take a look at the grain and livestock trade mixed action here as we work through our mid-morning as we have really just kind of chopped around here looking like a quiet Friday so far with Hong Futures really the leader here as we look at things along with Kansas City wheat. Now, next week's USDA WASDE crop report is a big one. The agency tends to be conservative in adjusting South America production until the February report. That's when it tends to reflect problems when they exist. But the production cuts showing up in the private estimates are much larger than USDA likes to do in a single report. 
Normally, uh, big private sector cuts uh, could be skeptical in a single month, but the cash market providing validity to the estimates in the mid-120s range for Brazil soybeans, let alone big cuts for Paraguay, Uruguay, and possibly Argentina. Now, Brazil's exportable soybeans are now priced above U.S. golf supplies from May forward, suggesting that Brazil's domestic crush market is determined to keep soybeans at home this time around and not to allow the export market to have the supply from May forward. That has huge implications for the U.S. balance sheet we're going to be watching very closely. Right now, soybeans for March down three and three quarters, 1540 and a half. July down three and a half, 1538 and a half. March bean meal down $1.80 a ton, 43530. March bean oil up 3.6578. March corn, one and three quarters higher, 618 and a half. July corn up three, 616. March Chicago wheat down one and a half, 750 and a quarter. March Kansas City wheat up four and a half, 773 and a half. March spring wheat up two and a quarter at 903. Livestock lean hogs, February up 32, 8677. April up 97, 35. March feeder cattle down 32, 166.40. April down 17, 171.62. February live cattle seven higher, 141.67. April down 12, 146.62. Crude oil, 252 a barrel higher, 92.79. And the Dow Jones down 49 points. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in today. Next up, we're talking to Arlen Suderman of StoneX. Arlen, I want to ask you first about this jobs report. I mentioned earlier on the show that one of the facts that was featured in there was that 50% of small businesses raised wages in January to hire new workers. And Arlen, I want to ask, are we cooking an inflationary spiral into this labor market? What do you think? Yeah, we really are. And uh, that's a great observation that you made there because uh, inflation is still alive and well. Wage inflation is one of the factors that uh, policymakers seem to be ignoring, talking about the positives of it for the worker standpoint. Uh, but it has a big impact because those wages are just simply pushed along then um, to the cost of goods and services. And when we look at what the Fed follows for inflation indicators, it's primarily the PCE index and the core PCE index that excludes food and energy, but high energy prices go into just about everything, as does high food prices. And of course, we're looking at crude oil prices, seven-year highs as well. And when we look at this morning's jobs report, looking at our average hour, hourly earnings up 5.7% year on year, that was a full half point above what the trade was expecting. Uh, they were at 5.2%, and uh, last month was also revised higher the previous month from 47 to 5%, indicating that wage inflation has been stronger than expected over the last couple of months, and that continues to argue for the Fed to take more aggressive action to bring this inflation under control, and that's why the markets are reacting the way they are today. Arlen, as you think about the Fed's reaction to this, do you still anticipate the next or I guess the, the first potential rate hike could come at their March meeting? 
Yeah, it, yeah, I re definitely do expect that. Uh, obviously, these monthly jobs reports will be big between now and then. Uh, the Fed will be watching those closely to see if there's any surprises that come up. So there'll be another one at the beginning of March um, before the Fed meets to discuss that. But uh, certainly that is going to be a concern. We'll be watching other indicators as well. Um, but the question is then how much of a rate hike? All the talk is about expectations for how many 25 basis point rate hikes. We forget that the Fed used to raise rates of 50 to 75 basis points or more at times. Uh, it's just during the Bernanke era and forward that we started doing the 25 basis point hikes. And there are some people who believe that we could see a larger rate hike in there at some point. The market is pricing in expectations that we will see uh, rate hikes during this calendar year of 100 to 125 basis points. So that'd be one to one and a quarter percentage point increase in, in rates. Um, I'm not sure the Fed will be that aggressive. I think that it needs to be that aggressive to bring inflation under control, but I think it's going to be afraid of doing so in an election year. And um, so that may temper it. The Fed tends to be slow to act. And so I think it'll be less, and I think they'll be more aggressive after the elections if we stay on the same course that we're on. The next question is, when do they start withdrawing the stimulus from the economy? And that can actually give them some natural rate hikes that avoid them having to do it. And so uh, I think that debate is going to be pretty hot inside the boardroom discussing that. Um, in today's jobs report and the high energy prices and the high wages uh, really swing the argument toward the hawks now and trying to start withdrawing the stimulus from the economy to bring consumer demand to more normal levels relative to the hyper-elevated levels it is today. You mentioned those high energy prices, Arlen. They do. They percolate through everything in the economy. West Texas Intermediate, well over $90 now. It, are we seeing demand drive this crude oil price, or is this supply issues maybe as we look at, at Russia and, and China? What's going on to move crude oil so high right now? Well, first of all, on the demand side, the recovery in the economy has been stronger than what was anticipated. So demand has been there, demand growth, not just domestically, but globally. And then near term, we look at the cold weather across much of the country. It's increasing demand for energy as well. Uh, then on the supply side, this cold weather is actually disrupting production in the shale oil fields. And uh, so that hurts the supply side. OPEC has been struggling to keep up with their output quotas. Uh, they've been falling short more than 250,000 barrels per day short of their output quotas. And then you have the geopolitical risk of Russia and Ukraine. A lot of energy comes out of that area. And um, if we have a military conflict there, that could be disruptive. And then we have uh, uh, the, the geopolitical risk in the Middle East where Iranian-backed rebels continue to try airstrikes uh, uh, against uh, oil fields there in various parts of the Middle East and uh, creating some potential disruptions as well. So you've got risks on the supply side while you have rising demand and global supplies are getting pretty snug, especially in the Southeast Asian markets. Okay, Arlen, is this going to put a tailwind behind the ethanol market with all this strength in crude oil? Well, it certainly should provide some strength uh, for the biofuel markets. Now, with ethanol, we're very much restricted to that 10% blending for the most part. And so it comes down to miles driven by fossil fuel-fueled um, vehicles and what is the fuel efficiency of those vehicles. And that's we've been moving toward fewer of the fossil fuel-driven cars in more electric vehicles, and the fossil fuel-driven cars have a higher fuel efficiency requirements, and so that's been hurting our ethanol demand, um, along with some of the Omicron shutdown. So if we get past, it looks like we're getting past Omicron now, that certainly should help. Uh, but the biofuels, the renewable diesels that are coming on, the sustainable aviation fuels, they, this should really help drive the demand for that forward. Uh, that's a developing market, but it has a very bright future. All right. Uh, let's talk about the wheat market. Arlen, Kansas City has been moving around quite a bit, and it's up of substantially this morning, higher than, than any of the other ag markets going on. What, what's happening with Kansas City wheat today, Arlen? 
Well, the Kansas City market finally got a bump yesterday when Chicago bounced off a chart support, and then Kansas City followed it higher, and it helped the recovery, and it allowed Kansas City traders to say, okay, we've come down quite a bit. Maybe this is a buying opportunity. So you get some mills coming in, some export business. We've struggled to compete globally on the export market, but we also have some significant risk. The condition of the crop in the central and southern plains is in very poor condition right now due to La Nina-driven drought. Out. Um, we did have some good snows across the area, but it was a dry snow for the most part, not a lot of moisture. We did not fix the drought, and the outlook continues to look dry really through March and April for that region when you look at the long-term outlook. And so there's growing concerns about the hard red winter wheat crop and its ability to produce this coming year. Arlen, soybeans down today, 10, 11 cents down here uh, as, as trading comes to a close for the week. What, what's moving in the bean market? That's a market that's overbought, but we're still near long-term highs there and the highs for the move. This is a market that over the last 10 days, the dynamics have changed tremendously. The private production estimates coming out of South America are indicating that the, the extreme record heat that we saw in parts of South America, along with the drought in southern Brazil, Paraguay, Uruguay, and Argentina, did substantial damage to this year's crops. And uh, when you put that into the world balance sheet, and I've even done so on a conservative basis for making adjustments. Uh, now we look to see what USDA does, but it means it dynamically changes the market. When you look at this morning's bid sheets for soybeans at the ports in Brazil, they are more expensive in U.S. soybeans from May forward through the rest of the year. That is very rare for that to happen. Excuse me, and that means that we could see a dramatic increase in export demand in this current marketing year as the world has to come back to us in the previous short crop for soybeans a few years ago. Um, <clears throat> the domestic market was not awake, and they allowed exporters to export all of their supplies. The domestic market, the crushers, are now saying, we're not going to let that happen this summer. We're going to make sure we get our supplies and exportable supplies of soybeans out of Brazil are really drying up. Paraguay has a half of crop at best right now. They export a lot of their soybeans to Argentina to crush. Argentina has a short crop. They're not going to be able to crush as much. We had yesterday a weekly soy meal export sales, which were the second largest on record from what I was able to find as countries come to us for soy meal supporting our crush industry. So the dynamics of the soybean market have really changed over the last 10 days is we've begun to see some actual numbers on just how significant the crop losses are. I'm skeptical whether USDA is going to fully show that in next week's report, um, but February is the report when they do tend to make more significant changes to their balance sheet in South America when the damage is there. And the cash market right now is saying that the damage is really there. Arlen, do you think USDA is going to make any uh, changes to the South American corn production number, looking at Safrina maybe going in dry and the, uh, the, the troubles they've had in that first crop of corn? Yeah, I, I don't think they'll change much for the Safrina because of their tendency to be conservative on that, and I understand that. The first crop corn, I think they'll make some smaller, small, relatively moderate adjustments um, to that crop, um, but it's a Safrina crop that'll be the big one. We know the fertilizer application rates are going down, and there's some risk of an early end to the monsoon there for that crop, but that's going to take some time to play out. All right. Well, we'll continue to watch these updates from South America. Arlen Suderman of Stonex, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stick around. When AOA returns, Greg Solier will be here and we're, we'll be talking weather. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, 
Go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Considering an online pharmacy? Explore BeSafeRx to find useful information and resources to help you purchase medicines safely online. A safe online pharmacy requires a doctor's prescription, has an address in the United States, has a licensed pharmacist, and is licensed by a state pharmacy board. It's best to stay away from online pharmacies that don't meet these criteria. Discover more helpful tips and resources at BeSafeRx. Go to FDA.gov slash BeSafeRx. Oh, nice engine. Supercharged? Yep. High porosity and aggregates? Yep. Porous medium for gas exchange? Uh-huh. Microbial catalytic potential and repository for carbon and nitrogen? Check, check, and check. Oh, man, that is good under the hood. And to think I used to be impressed with hammies. So... When was the last time you looked under the hood at your farm's production engine? At your soil? Is it as healthy and productive as it can be? Stop by your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out and unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by NRCS and this radio station. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Hey, wouldn't it be great if life came with a remote control? You know, you could hit pause when you needed to, or hit rewind, like that time you knocked down that wasp's nest. Uh-oh. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. With early diagnosis and a few healthy changes, you can stop pre-diabetes before it leads to type 2 diabetes. To learn your risk, take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA, 
Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Oh boy, I tell you what, a lot of folks tuning in today might have a sore back from getting out there and shoveling all that snow yesterday. We're going to talk about what happened with yesterday's weather and what might be coming today and throughout the weekend. Greg Solier, meteorologist on This Week in Agribusiness, joins me. And Greg, yesterday I saw that 91 million Americans were under some kind of winter weather advisory. That was a huge storm that rolled across the, uh, the country yesterday. Yes, it certainly was, uh, Mike. Thanks for the invite to be back on the program here. Always a pleasure, uh, and maybe not necessarily a pleasure on the uh, past couple of days. And how ironic uh, for some folks across at least the Midwest in the midst of that snow drought, how, how ironic you get to Groundhog Day and you come up with some spots that picked up upwards of 15 inches of snow, some of the epicenter snow totals uh, in the parts of central Illinois. Uh, but in any event, yeah, you make a great point extending uh, uh, during Tuesday and yesterday, Wednesday, from the mid and the upper Rio Grande Valley of Texas and suburban Houston, where they had uh, some degree of frozen precipitation north and northeastward, all the way up into places like uh, oh, down eastern Maine and up into parts of the upper St. Lawrence River Valley. Uh, so that is a lot of real estate and extending southeast into the Tennessee and Ohio Valleys, where those folks, some of those folks in the lower Ohio Valley, Kentucky, for example, Southern Ohio, I don't picture poison, whether it was a foot, foot and a half of snow or a half to three quarters worth of an inch of ice in the trees and the power lines there to problematic, problematic areas. And again, we haven't even mentioned, touched on the severe weather that came through parts of Southern Alabama, Georgia, the Florida Panhandle from this uh, classic uh, winter storm. And it is a trademarker winter storms. You get one free sip over and a type over another and wide and expansive. That certainly fit the bill here over the past couple of days. Yeah, it certainly did. Greg, you mentioned a few snow totals. You had what, 11, 12 inches there in Illinois. You had a foot, foot and a half in Ohio. Who got the worst of this stuff uh, yesterday? Well, again, it depends on your perspective, uh, whether it was, uh, you know, a half to three quarters worth of an inch of ice in places like uh, maybe Paducah, Lexington, Louisville, uh, slipping and sliding into the southern areas of Ohio, uh, south of uh, Columbus, or the, yeah, 10, 15 uh, 16 inches of snow. I think some of the spots in Central Illinois, places like uh, Champaign, Danville, Springfield, Taylorville, some of those made national radio headlines for the degree of snow. And yeah, five to ten in some outlier localized one foot totals, uh, with the snow still going on in the parts of eastern Ohio. So we're still not done with that, and we still have to measure up the snow into the parts of uh, the Northeast and New England. So it's been that corridor, the Central Corn Belt, into uh, parts of the uh, uh, northern. Uh, areas of New England that have had virtually nothing in the way of any winter storms this season, especially uh, throughout the Midwest. So uh, hopefully this doesn't come down and melt all at once, and it looks like it won't, but that moisture will certainly be greatly appreciated here come late winter and springtime. It certainly will. And Greg, you know, you mentioned we're still tallying this snow total. What's the storm doing today? Or I guess what, what other weather events are you keeping an eye on today? Yeah, yeah, well, we're still looking at this thing to kind of wind its way out of eastern Ohio, the lower Great Lakes region. The worst of the snow is heading through upstate New York and northern New England. We'll keep an eye on maybe a couple of strong storms into the Florida panhandle. Uh, and, and frost and freeze concerns, they've had a couple of those here. Not the degree that we had in some of that historic cold and storm a few years ago, uh, but there'll be perhaps readings into the uh, mid uh, upper 20s, I should say, to lower 30s into the central and western Gulf Coast areas. The rest of the country is relatively quiet after a great December of moisture across California in the west and southwest. They are now behind and below schedule for their wet uh, and snowy season out there. So the drought pattern continues on. A little patchy snow cover into parts of uh, Kansas and Oklahoma and northern Texas from this storm. And we'll keep an eye on readings in the single digits. Of course, every year we try to chill off the winter wheat crop. But that's a key drought area and will be worsening, by the way, in the weeks, the next couple of months to come. Otherwise, it's just these fast-moving, windy weather systems. If you've got some blowing and drifting snow, which was another part of this storm, that could still be an ongoing issue where we've seen recent snow, not new snowfall, but what's on the ground is these clipper systems. One day it'll be a southwest wind hitting 30 to 35 miles an hour, just 40 some days it'll be a westerly wind, and that will be the story of windy weather pattern for the Dakotas, the upper Midwest, Great Lake region, and again, there's not much of the wind, any substantial snow on the ground through the western Dakotas, Nebraska. Those downslope winds are going to be into play from time to time, so we'll keep an eye on those. But apart from that, uh, no real major weather systems, winter storms per se, in the maps and charts here over the next seven to ten days. 
Well, that is good news. But Greg, I tell you what, these temperatures are cold. You know, I've been in, in Houston this whole week talking to Texans. And as this storm front was gearing up and that cold weather kept making its way south, you could tell these folks were, were having flashbacks to that shutdown of 2020, uh, 2021, when that cold snap came through. When do you see these ice cold temps sort of moving off or at least more average temps starting to return? Well, well, first of all, with those downslope winds across uh, Montana, the uh, Wyoming, the Dakotas, uh, we're going to look at a nice thaw rate again from a comfort standpoint. Not great with the lack of snow cover, but there'll be a thaw going over parts of the northern and central plains, northwestern and western Corn Belt uh, for next week sometime. And then there's still a, a series of cold air intrusions expected over the eastern half of the country, seeing really no sign of that breaking down anytime soon. Temperatures may modify and moderate, but gee, it's been probably four or five goes of it uh, with uh, frosted, scattered brief light freezes all the way into northern and central Florida. Wouldn't be surprised behind this system. They get into the same situation before temperatures tend to modify and moderate. And that's where the snapshot warmth in, in the western plains at times in the southwest, recurring cool and cold weather, northern and eastern Corn Belt into the eastern states, and systems kind of like to run the periphery of that temperature range across the country. So while readings may time, from time to time moderate, I don't see a big warm-up anywhere uh, for a good part of the eastern Corn Belt and points east and southeast at times. Those downslope winds, as we've seen at times this wintertime season, will moderate temperatures, maybe for the wrong reason, the northern and central plains and western Corn Belt locales. And that all sets the stage, as you and I have talked about on this week in agribusiness, on what may be kind of a wetter, cooler, coldish uh, planting season, particularly in those eastern Corn Belt areas. And and while we'll get our, our spring moisture, I still think we need to be on guard for ongoing dryness and drought over the Dakotas and points on southward here this growing and planting season. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Today, more than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's, and more than 11 million family members and friends serve as their caregivers. While researchers are working tirelessly to end Alzheimer's and all other dementia, the number of people living with Alzheimer's is expected to more than double by 2050. The toll of the disease is monumental, and its devastation affects family, friends, and especially caregivers. No one should face Alzheimer's and dementia by themselves. If you or someone you know is struggling to provide care to a loved one, please share this message. You are not alone. Free help and resources are available 24-7. To talk with an expert and obtain disease-related information, care and support services, Call 800-272-3900 or visit the Alzheimer's Association website at alz.org. You are not alone.